Uh, I'd love to have you find uh, either the Bible you brought with you or if you need one. There are red Bibles somewhere in the row that you're in, hopefully. And turn with me to the book of Luke, uh, chapter 12. We are finishing this morning our series called Vertigo, the disorienting stories of Jesus. And uh, we're ending on Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is uh, Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And um, yeah, excited just to hopefully allow over the next couple of months some of the things that we've been talking about, these themes that have just been coming up again and again in these parables we've been looking at, to kind of settle into the church and just to see what God does with them in the life of, um, in our lives and the life of the congregation as a whole. We have been um, sort of on this journey with Jesus over the last number of weeks where all of these stories he tells, these parables, are told on the way to Jerusalem. And Palm Sunday, which we're kind of celebrating today while our our morning isn't going to be kind of the traditional Palm Sunday service, this is what we're celebrating, that Jesus is actually arriving in Jerusalem. Uh, He's been telling these stories, these parables along the way, and now, this morning, uh, this Sunday before, uh, before Easter, we celebrate this time of Jesus coming into Jerusalem where people are, are celebrating that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as king. I mean, he's coming to, like, to sit on the throne that, that God has prepared, and he's coming to, to rule and to reign from Jerusalem. This is people uh, there. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy uh, spoken of in uh, the prophet Zechariah that says, Behold, your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey. So all this is happening on Palm Sunday. And yet, there's this shadow side to the story, isn't there? That, that everybody, or not, not everybody, but uh, probably a large percentage of people who are lining the streets on this Palm Sunday, putting their, their coats down and palm branches and singing, Save us, Jesus, Son of David. Uh, many of these people would actually end up turning on Jesus, and in just um, a little under a week, they would end up saying, Crucify him. Because the kingdom he came to bring was too disorienting for them to accept. The way that Jesus was king and revealing himself as king, it was so disorienting to their perspective of what they had envisioned him to do that they couldn't accept it and they rejected him as king. So as we sort of gather on this Palm Sunday, one of the things we realize is that there is this shadow side. And there's this shadow side to ourselves and there's a shadow side to the people of God. And we have to recognize that. We have to know that it's there, that we have within us the capacity to to be like those people who in some ways celebrate, who celebrate our ideas about Jesus, but when we actually hear the words of Jesus, when we actually see the example of Jesus, there's something inside of us that can say, no, I'm not really interested in that. And that's a little bit of what this season of the church year leading up to Easter is about. It's about looking inside. It's about... um, Sorting, opening up those shadowy places inside of us and allowing God's light to shine in. And we've been doing that through the words of Jesus and allowing God to transform us so that we begin to see the world differently. So that we start to see the world the way God sees it through the kingdom of God and we step in line with God's heart for this world. So this morning, this, this last parable we're going to look at comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Now, these words aren't going to be on the screen, um, so you can, you can just follow along in your Bibles if you want, or you can just simply listen to this parable. It starts with some commentary. Jesus says, 
Luke says, Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to him, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Verse 16, and then he tells him a parable. It says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, Well, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he, uh, then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. That's where I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, Self, you have plenty stored up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, Jesus says. This is kind of the punchline of the whole thing. He says, this is how it will be with everyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So we have this, this story. Now, Jesus, um, he says uh, this, this word, this really strong word that Jesus doesn't say very often. But he calls this man in this parable a fool right? Now, I was a child of the 80s. I grew up watching the A-Team. I don't know how many of you watch the A-Team. I was a big fan of Mr. T. always wanted the haircut. And Mr. T, if many of you know him, you know the, the line of, pity the fool. You know, I pity the fool. So I, I kind of imagine that uh, in this parable as Jesus, when he, when he calls this man a fool in the story, that's strong language. That's like, wake up and pay attention. What is so foolish about this guy? How many of us would love to have this scenario play out? I'm taking early retirement. Like, it's perfect. Like, uh, the abundant crops and, like, uh, we have too much. And so I'm just going to sort of chill, sit back, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry, and enjoy this blessing. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? And yet Jesus says, well, there's something about this, about this guy's perspective, that through the lens of the kingdom of God is actually foolish. And so we want to unpack that. What does it mean that Jesus calls this man a fool, this man who many people in our culture would actually love to be, right? We would love to be this guy. So the, the parable doesn't just launch out of nowhere. Jesus doesn't just start into the parable. It actually comes out of this, this interruption, this conversation with a guy who comes to him and asks him a question. Actually, it's not a question. It's more of a statement trying to pull him into a division between he and his brother. Verse 13 starts like this. So someone in the crowd, this man, calls out to him, says, teacher, rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I realize, like, again, sometimes we talk about this. The world of Jesus is so hard for us to imagine sometimes. Like a world where siblings would fight over inheritance issues is so far removed from our culture that, again, it can be really hard to relate sometimes. Um, Imagine, imagine families disintegrating and turning their backs on each other because of money, inheritance, not being able to agree on who gets what. I mean, this this is a story that hits pretty close to home, doesn't it? How many of you, I mean, I won't make you raise your hands, but have experienced this, either in people uh, you know, who you've just sort of seen families fall apart. I mean, we've all seen the celebrities, right? Who've like, you know, the, the <clears throat> big sort of celebrity issues with inheritance. Excuse me. Um, 
But um, many of us, I'm guessing, even in our own families, have had some inheritance issues that just didn't go very well. And maybe we're still carrying anger and bitterness about that. Or maybe other people are carrying anger and bitterness toward us because they feel like we got an unfair advantage over them. So these siblings are squabbling over money, over inheritance. Let's be real honest. Like, I mean, just from, from a kingdom perspective, doesn't it seem ridiculous that people who share the last name, who share their last names, I mean, who have this gift of being given the same last name, who are, are family, who have the closest bonds that any people will have, and that money, that stuff, can tear that all apart. It can. I mean, it just happens again and again and again. Um, and the more there is to divide, the more division there often is. And so there's a danger there. Jesus, he, he's kind of entering into this whole danger over inheritance Stuff. Now, it wasn't unusual for people to ask rabbis issues like this. Rabbis were seen as though there were those people in the culture that, that could make wise decisions between people who were in any sort of disagreement. So the man isn't like sort of off base coming to him. He says, Rabbi, teacher, t- tell my brother to give me my portion of the inheritance. What this man doesn't do is ask him a question. He makes a demand. Um... Which is interesting. What he doesn't say is, hey, Rabbi, my brother and I are having this issue, this dispute over money because the, the will wasn't specified. And by the way, in that day, the eldest son got a double portion of the inheritance. It's just the way it was. Um, but if the father hadn't sort of spelled things out in their will, there were cases where everything went to the eldest son and it was up to them, to their character and what they did with it. So we don't know all the background here, but this younger son who is coming to Jesus probably, he's not the eldest son, he feels cheated, he feels slighted, and maybe rightfully so. But what he doesn't say to Jesus is, hey, my my older brother, um, we're having this dispute over inheritance, and I'm worried that it's going to be the end of our relationship. I'm worried it's going to tear us apart. So Jesus, would you help us figure this out so that we can be reconciled to each other and, and, and continue being family and brothers? That's not what he says. What does he say? Tell my older brother to give me my portion of the inheritance. What does that statement say about the relationship between he and his brother already? It's gone. It's already broken. It's already divided. So Jesus... Um, he actually, he says, his response is, like, who made me judge or arbiter over you? Like, who made me the one who's supposed to tell your brother what you want him to do? This question, Jesus says, is actually an echo from the Old Testament, Moses. Moses, at this one point, you remember the story in Exodus chapter 2, where Moses gets involved in a dispute between two Hebrews, two of his, like, family And they're going at each other. And Moses steps in the middle and he says, why are you guys fighting with each other? And what's their response to him? Where does their aggression go? It gets put on Moses. And they look at him and they say, who made you judge over us? Like, who put you in that that position? And so Jesus just echoes that question back. And he says, who made me judge? What do I look like? Judge Judy, right? This is Jesus. Um, Like, I I love, like, when when I hear him, like, He's like, man, who made me judge over you? Because here's the thing. Jesus isn't interested in dividing up the spoils of broken relationships. Jesus is interested in fixing broken relationships. Jesus is interested in reconciling broken relationships. 
So it's not his job to be judged and to say, you get this much and you get that much. That is not his concern because that is evidence of brokenness already. Jesus is interested in, in healing and in, in bringing relationships back together. So Jesus actually just doesn't even touch that whole discussion. What he does is he gets to the deeper issue. He says, there's something going on in your family that's tearing you apart. And it's not just the inheritance, it's greed. It's greed. Um, Jesus, he, he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. The word greed um, is the word pleonexia. Anybody want to say that? It's a fun word to say, pleonexia in, uh, in Greek. And it's made of two words, uh, pleon, which means more, numerically more. So you've got an increasing amount, and exo, which means to have. So pleonexia, greed, is to have more. We want more. It's this desire to have more and more and more and more. Now, we think we know what greed looks like, don't we? Um, we can see it, like when it, when it sort of happens. We know what it feels like. We sort of know the texture of it because we all sort of experience greed to some extent. But greed, Jesus says, takes all different kinds, all different forms. He says, be on your guard, watch out. Another strong warning against all kinds of greed. So apparently there's not just, greed is a bit of a shapeshifter. It doesn't just sort of take one form. For example, this desire for more in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 says this, be on your, or excuse me, it says, but among you, among the church, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for the Lord's people. Um, same sort of thing happens in Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. So greed is kind of lumped in to this sort of pot of lust and desires for more and sexual immorality. And this whole thing is just sort of together in this, this, this sort of lump of greed because Jesus says it's all this desire for more. It's all a desire for things we don't have or maybe we can't have. And this is what greed does. It pleonexia. It takes, it starts with just the smallest action. I mean, greed, it just sort of, it's just this tiny little decision to say, hmm, like I, I really want that. And maybe it's off limits or maybe it just, it is, it's something that we don't currently have and so I want that. And we take a step toward it. And what happens when we get that thing that we wanted? Now what do we want? We want more of it. And so we take another step, and we want more because what we have now, it doesn't satisfy us anymore, so we just keep moving and moving and moving until all of a sudden greed has this grip on our hearts, lust, whatever it may be, and we look back and we think, man, I never dreamed I would end up this far from shore. Man, I never dreamed I would be in this deep. And I, I don't know how to get back. That's what greed does to us. Jesus says we have to sort of be on guard. This, this lust, this desire for more in whatever shape, whether it is this sort of like sexual sin of desiring, turning people into things to use um, for our own sort of selfish desires or whether it's more stuff or whether it's what that stuff can offer us. Jesus says, watch out, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed like this. Um, the word lust is actually... It's, again, made up of two words. It's a compound word that means in the mind. 
This is where lust lives, is in the mind. And what happens with lust is, you ever play with these toys as a kid? That you, you put them in the bathtub, and they're like these little capsules, and you drop them in, and then they just start like expanding and getting bigger and bigger. What lust does is it just starts out like this little thing, but the more attention we give to it, it just starts to grow and grow and grow until it consumes our mind. Until all we can think about is this thing of getting more and more and more of it. Um, Here's one example. Here's one of the forms of greed that I've noticed in my own heart over this last week is, uh, which is really unfortunate that I'm preaching about this and God is like, hey, you've got to deal with some stuff. So um, we need a new van, right? And there's nothing wrong with getting a new van. Our van is just it, every week, like seriously, this has been the pattern for the last three weeks. I go out and there's a new puddle of some mysterious fluid under the van. And so I'm just like, what, what is that now? Um, and so it is, it is actively dying. And so I, I start, and, and here, again, a bit of my personality, I'm a little obsessive. So, like, if there's something I need to do or something I'm into, I can get really compulsive about it, and it just becomes the thing I'm, I, I do. Every spare moment is like, I wonder what I could do, you know, doing research. I know, again, I'm all alone in that. None of you can relate. Um, so this is what I'm doing. Kids go to bed, and I'm like, I'm on the computer, I'm researching, like, all these different sorts of vehicles, and, and I think, initially, I'm like, hey, we're just going to get something that's going to replace it. It's no big deal. Um, it's, just a, you know, it's just a van. We're just going to get from point A to point B, simple. And then I start looking, and I start thinking, and this thought starts to get in my mind, like, I would look really cool in that. <laughs> like, I start, to, I start to see myself in these minivans. Now, how, how ridiculous is that? This is how, like, this is how far greed takes you down this road of, like, you imagine yourself looking cool in a minivan. It's ridiculous. So, um, so again, like, there's nothing wrong with having a new car or a different car. There's nothing wrong with having a cool car. But what starts to happen is you start to think, like, ah, oh, like, this thing is going to give me something. It's going to give me a, a, a better... Um, you know, people are going to think of me better, um, or whatever the case may be. It's going to make me look cool. It's going to make me feel a certain way. But what happens when you give in to that and you actually get that thing you want? You realize it's not really doing it for me. And this greed can take all sorts of forms. It can be a new pair of shoes. Nothing wrong with a new pair of shoes. But, man, I'm going to look good in these shoes. People are going to think, man, this, 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 this gal, this guy's got style, right? I need a new, I need a new outfit for Easter Sunday morning. I can't come to church on Easter Sunday morning without a new outfit because Jesus wants me to look good in worship <laughs> on Sunday. Is there anything wrong? Is that too soon, like too close to home? Uh, is there anything wrong with having a new outfit? No, there's nothing wrong with it. But all of a sudden, this thing starts to promise us something like, man, people are going to think I look really good. And, and we're allowing this, this greed, this pleonexia to kind of play out. And it just sort of takes up our head space. And it just leads to more and more and more and more. So Jesus says, be on your guard. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, all kinds of greed. And then to kind of make his point, he launches in to this parable. And he tells a story about this guy who, you know, this man is already rich. Before the, the, the parable, I mean, as, as the parable opens, this man is already wealthy. He says, the ground of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. So he's not lacking for anything before the bumper crop. Um, but he has this amazing blessing of an abundant harvest, and he has to decide what to do with it. Now, the interesting thing about the story Jesus tells us is actually kind of funny. The only conversation this man has is with whom? 
himself. Me, myself, I, mine. The only dialogue this guy has through the whole parable is with himself. In fact, he uses like personal pronouns 11 times in these few verses. In fact, he's actually talking to himself. He's like, self? That's what it actually says in the Greek. He's like, self, soul, eat, drink, and be merry. Like, it's, it's ridiculous what this guy's doing. He, it's all about himself. The only way he can see his abundance is through the lens of it's mine. It's mine. And Jesus, I think, is holding out a warning to us that says wealth, abundance, whatever the case may be, it has the potential to isolate us. Now, when we talk about wealth, again, we talk about this fairly often, we immediately, probably all of us, start imagining other people. I'm not wealthy, right? Um, I think it was Andy Stanley who said, I've never met a wealthy person in my whole life because we always compare ourselves to those who are just, they have a little bit more than we do. Um, but on like a global scale, we're, we're probably all in that category. I mean, half of the world, half the world lives on less than $2 a day. I'm pretty wealthy in relation to that. And so like what we have to recognize is warning of Jesus in this parable is that wealth, that abundance, that having enough stuff, having our needs met has this potential to isolate us to sort of put us on an island, like just it's me, myself, and I. Um, And the more we have to conserve, the more sort of conservative we become. And we just start sort of putting walls up around our stuff because we're nervous we're going to lose it. And so we we put walls up to keep other people out, and we get into this wall-building mentality. And all, all of a sudden, what we wake up and find one day is not only have we kept everyone else out, we have kept ourselves in. And we've trapped ourselves. This is what wealth, this is what just having our needs met on our own has the potential to do to us. In fact, the, the prophet Isaiah, God says through Isaiah in, in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, woe to you who add house to house. You just keep sort of expanding and you join field to field until there is no space left and you live alone in the land. I mean, you hear the sadness of that? I mean, it just has this wealth abundance. It has this potential. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to do this. But there's a warning in it that says it can isolate us. Now, so the man, he, he's trying to decide, what do I do? What do I do with this abundance? And there's no sense of a bigger awareness that this belongs to God. There's no sense that this came from God, that this is a gift from God. It is all mine. So he has this conversation. He comes up with a plan. He says, I know what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Now, maybe he needed new barns. We don't know. Like maybe his barns were falling down. We don't know. But he makes this plan in isolation, in island. And he says, I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. I'm going to store up this grain. It's my grain. And so I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry the rest of my life. Again, like the Old Testament calls to us and says, like right before the the people of Israel enter the promised land and God says, I'm going to bless you, he says, but be careful with the blessing. Be careful, because here's the warning in Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. It says, you may say to yourself, you may say to yourself, my power, my strength, my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives the ability to produce wealth. 
So Jesus says, this is foolish. I mean, it's really foolish to say, it's mine, and I hold it, and it's, it's, I'm responsible for it, and, you know, that, that sort of um, really, really selfish view. It's foolish because one of the reasons is because we're not even in control of our own souls, our own lives. That's what, if you read it in the initial, in the original language, he's having a conversation with himself, and he says, self, eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy life. And Jesus says, yourself is going to be demanded of you tonight. Now, Jesus isn't saying, if you act selfishly, you're going to die in your sleep tonight. Like, that's not what Jesus is saying, I don't think. What he's saying, though, is, is, is sort of this play that says, you think you control everything this, this man in the parable does. You think it's all yours, and yet you don't even have control of your own life because it's a gift from you. Your, the, the word, your life will be demanded of you is actually the same word that was used of a bank calling a note, calling a loan to be paid. Your life, your, 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 even your own life is on loan from God. And so it's so foolish, Jesus says of this man, to see ourselves as it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, because our own lives, our own souls are on loan from God. So that's, I think that's the, 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 the real sort of issue here is that it's a failure to recognize life as a gift. It's a failure to recognize that everything we have is a gift from God. The ability to do what we do is a gift from God, and it's not guaranteed. And so uh, Jesus ends this parable, and he says this, but this is how it is with everyone who just stores up possessions, treasures for themselves, but is not also rich toward God. But is not also rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? If this is kind of the, 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 the place this whole parable is headed to be rich toward God, what does that mean? It wasn't that the man was wealthy. That wasn't his problem. The problem isn't with how much we hold. The problem becomes in how we hold our stuff. And so Jesus says we, we, we need to be rich toward God. So take a look. If you're there in your Bibles, take a look. Go over just a couple of verses to chapter 12, verse 32. Chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus kind of goes into another teaching about possessions and life doesn't. Um, you can't be found, so don't worry about your life all of that. But verse 32, he says this. He says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom, to make life available. Your father has been pleased to generously hold out the gift of the kingdom of God, life with God. What do you have to do to deserve an inheritance. I was born. Didn't have a lot of say-so over that. You were in the family. You, you were just blessed with being in this family, having this last name. What do you do to deserve an inheritance? Nothing. It's a gift, and you just you simply receive it. What do you do to get the kingdom of God, this kind of life God is holding out for you? You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You just simply receive it. You receive it. Jesus says all these kind of crazy things. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. See, this life with God, it is not something we can earn. It's not something we can work for. It's not something we can deserve. It is not religious activity. It's not something we can fight for. It is not something we can defend. The kingdom of God can only be given and it can only be received. This is the beauty of who God is, that he generously is pleased to give us life, to give us the kingdom 
of God. How do we become rich toward God? Well, we look at how rich God has been toward us. Like, look at the whole story of the scriptures of how God has been extravagantly rich toward us. That he creates this big, beautiful, abundant, mysterious world, and then he puts us in it. God didn't have to do that. He could have just kept the whole world to himself to enjoy. If, the, if God was sort of this me, myself, and I kind of, kind of God, he could have just done that. He could have just enjoyed a life of isolation, but that's not the nature of God. He, he loves relationship. He is love, and so he creates us, and he puts us in this world to share it with him and to take care of it. And even when we rebelled, I mean, he, I mean that's generosity, right? But even when we rebelled and chose to go a different way, God didn't just sort of like you know, sort of squash us and start over. He could have done that, but he didn't. In his incredible generosity, he moved toward us. And he found us in our hiding, trying to cover our shame. And he just says, where, where are you? And he, he makes a way for us to be back in relationship with him. He comes to us in his generosity. He comes to us in the Old Testament and he gives us the law. And, and it was flawed because of our human sin and all of that, but he makes a way for us to relate to God. It's incredibly generous that he did that. He could have just done that, but he didn't. Out of his richness toward us, he actually put on flesh and blood and stepped into the mess of our world. And, and, and he doesn't just, out of his generosity, become human. He could have just done that and say, this is what God looks like. He looks like Jesus in the flesh. But out of his richness and his generosity, he actually took it all the way to the end. He actually kept moving toward Jerusalem, even though, even though the conflict was intensifying. Even though he knew that as he rode into Jerusalem on that day and people were, were like screaming his praises, he knew what was coming. He knew that he wasn't going to end the week on a throne. He was going to end the week on a cross. And he just kept moving toward Jerusalem out of his richness and his generosity. And he gave his life. He took on sin. He took everything, Satan and the principalities and powers of this world that we collaborated with, and he took it all on himself, and he took it to the cross, and he made a way for us to move out of that sort of sinful nature and into a life with God. He saved us through his richness, his generosity. But he doesn't just leave it there. Like out of his generosity, he now sends his Holy Spirit. He sends his Spirit to us to be with us, to fill us, to empower us, to transform us from the inside out so that his love and his grace and his joy and his peace start to well up inside of us so that we can share it with the world around us. And, and it, it, like it couldn't possibly get better that this life is actually eternal life. He says the life that you experience is just a taste of life that will never end. The beauty of God's richness for us could not be overstated. There is nothing that God could have given us that he hasn't given us. That his, his generosity has overflowed from the beginning of time to us and we, we little flock, we just get to receive it. We just get to say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I'm yours. We get to receive it. And when we do, when we step into the kingdom of God, the question then becomes, God, everything I have is a gift. My life is a gift. This breath I took is a gift. My soul is a gift. God, how do you want me to use it? What if, what if this guy would have asked that question? God, thanks for the abundant harvest. I know I didn't deserve it. It was your land. I've already got plenty of stuff. God, what do you want me to do with it? Well, you need some new barns. Build some new barns. Great. 
okay, what do you want me to do with the rest of it? Well, let's find some ways to bless the people around you. Like, let's find some ways to be extravagantly generous. Let's find some ways to just reflect this richness toward others in the community. This is what God asks of us. He asks us to just, just look at how rich he's been toward us and then to reflect this richness back to him and to the world around us. Um, so are there any ways, are there any ways on this Palm Sunday that, that your stuff is sort of ruining relationships? that you feel yourself being pulled more and more into conversations with yourself and you're living in your own head and there's this, this lust, this desire for more and more and more of whatever it is that you realize God is saying, that's a dead end road. I mean, that's going to take you to deeper places than you want to go. And so it's time to turn around and to come back to him. Is there any, is there any way that that's a part of your life right now, that there's this greed, this lust that has taken root? And Jesus is just saying, it's not the way of the kingdom, so turn, turn around, turn around, and I'll meet you. I'll meet you. Is there any way that uh, families, that relationships, that people in the church are, are sort of being pulled apart because of stuff or greed? Are there, is there anything, is there anything you're holding back from God? Is there anything, like as you look at the richness of him holding nothing back from you and you realize I'm holding something back from God? And today God is just saying, would you just, would you just stop holding that back? Would you just trust me enough to open your hands and to allow me access to that part of your life? God, thank you for your richness toward us. Thank you, God, that you love to give us the kingdom. You love to just live life with us, to give us uh, the, the, the gift of your Holy Spirit at work in us. God, um, as we think about this holy week, this Palm Sunday, this, this week that you just went all the way to the cross, God, we want to take this journey with you. God, we want to experience every gift that you have given us through giving your life, through your death, through your resurrection from the dead. God, you tell us that you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and we want to just simply open our hands and receive it. God, I'm guessing that many of us aren't experiencing that, that we feel like something is off because we don't feel like we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And God, maybe it's because we've been trying to earn stuff. We're not just receiving the kingdom, we're working for the kingdom. And God, you want to set us free of that today. So God, pour your Holy Spirit out in our lives, God, as generously as you do. And God, set us free in any way, God, in any way that's holding us back. God, we want to be your kingdom people, this little flock that you call to yourself. We trust you, we love you, God, in Jesus' name.